Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer, Fred, Fred Hoffman. California's farmers are getting more nervous about their increased costs due to tariffs between China and the United States. California's farmers are already hearing about some of their goods rotting away in China's port cities due to what the Chinese are calling qualitative tariffs. What's that? We'll explain. A local congressman introduced a bill to phase out farm subsidies. Well, how did that vote go down? We'll tell you. You know about California's farm-to-fork trend to encourage more local consumption of nearby farm products. Did you know about the farm-to-flower shop push? How about the farm-to-mug movement? That's right. We're going to take a look at locally grown beer. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The tariff tug-of-war with China is heating up. At press time, a new round of tariffs were to be instigated by both the United States and China. But that was at press time. These things have a way of getting delayed. And California's farmers remain nervous. There is something like $4.5 billion worth of tariff-eligible goods that go to China each year. Of that $4.5 billion, over $2 billion are agricultural products that head to China. China is California's third biggest foreign market for farm goods. However, there are a lot of farmers who think China is already messing with them. China has already instituted what are called qualitative tariffs, as opposed to quantitative tariffs. A qualitative tariff basically is judging the quality of the food as it comes to their ports. And China's major ports of entry have ramped up checks on fresh fruit imports from the United States, which could delay shipments from U.S. growers already dealing with higher tariffs. Reuters News reports that China has resumed the practice of inspecting every batch of U.S. fresh fruit. All U.S.-originated fruit shipments have been subject to up to seven days of quarantine upon arrival in the port city of Shenzhen. Previously, customs officers in China had let shipments through while they conducted sample checks. And there has been more detaining of fruits, citrus, and apples, not just because they were refused because of quality, but because while they were sitting there in the containers, the food had perished. One crop that was hit particularly hard, California's cherry crop. Cherry packers say there's not enough refrigerated storage for their cherries sitting on a port and that the chance the cherries will be destroyed under the sun is far greater and they're looking for alternative markets. There are several California farm products that rely heavily on exports to China. 46% of all California pistachios that are exported head to China. Plums, 35%. Hay, 30%. Cotton, 27%. Beef, 24%. And cherries, 23%. Also dependent on the Chinese market are such California staples as table grapes, dairy products, and wine. We had a good uh, roundtable this morning with producers. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue in Spokane, Washington, Monday, accompanied by one of the region's congressional representatives, Kathy McMorris-Rogers. She told reporters that farmers in the meeting voiced concerns about tariffs and trade disruptions, basically with this message. We've worked for years to develop some of these markets, and we don't want to lose them. Secretary Perdue said there are plans for helping farmers financially injured by the trade situation, but don't expect any specifics until Labor Day, and Perdue said, understandably. There's a legitimate anxiety over there about do I sell my crop at these low prices or do I hold on or what? The mitigation strategy will hopefully give farmers some idea whether they should hold those crops or sell them and what they can expect from the government. My timeline for that is to give them some indication of that by Labor Day. 
Meanwhile, this week, Canada began 10% tariffs on some U.S. ag products, and on Thursday, Mexico will slap a 20% tariff on U.S. pork. Friday, China, a 25% tariff on U.S. soybeans. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. U.S. farmers and ranchers are among the first casualties in a growing trade war. American Farm Bureau trade specialist Dave Salmonson says Canada is focusing its retaliation mostly on metals, but isn't leaving ag products untouched. Pizza, yogurt, chocolate, orange juice, beer, and whiskey. For ag products, that's what we're seeing. 25% retaliatory tariffs start up from Canada. The European Union is also retaliating for the same reason. And for ag products, they've included rice and cranberries, peanut butter, kidney beans, also whiskey, and that's also going to be 25% tariffs. Mexico has done things in two levels. In June, they put up 10% tariffs, including pork, cheese, apples, and whiskey. Here in the beginning of July, they're going to up that to 20%. Salmonson says many effects will take time to surface. The near term for contracts, potentially they have to be executed already. It's up to the importer to pay the tariff and see how much of it they can pass on and higher prices to their consumers. In a little longer term, you would think that if we're not price competitive in those markets, the buyers will try to find product elsewhere if they can. Those export markets will dry up. If the tariff dispute drags on, Salmonson says everyone from producers to processors will feel the effects. Even so, he adds, tariffs are a tool to get people to change policies. Farm Bureau wants countries involved to sit down and talk to get those policies changed and the tariffs ended as quickly as possible. What should farmers do in the meantime? Watch this closely. Make sure that other people, we always say your congressmen and senators, when you have the chance, know what the current effects are if you're being affected or what potential effects are uh, going to be down the road on you. Chad Smith, Washington. Should American farm subsidies be phased out? Well, one who thinks so is a local congressman, U.S. Representative Tom McClintock, a conservative Republican and Trump supporter whose 4th Congressional District covers the Central Valley's east side and foothill areas and stretches from north of Sacramento to south of Fresno. He recently introduced an amendment in the House of Representatives to phase out farm subsidies. How did it do? Not too well. His amendment got just 34 votes in the 435-member House of Representatives. One of the 380 no votes cast was by Representative Doug LaMalfa, a Republican from his neighbor, the 1st Congressional District in the northeastern corner of California. LaMalfa is a fourth-generation rice farmer. He told Tim Hearden of the Western Farm Press that the nation needs price stability for certain staple crops to avoid being dependent on other countries for food, and that if he hadn't accepted the subsidies for his own rice, his business would have been at a competitive disadvantage. Hearden points out that most growers would prefer that lawmakers first address the countless regulations, pesticide restrictions, water cutbacks, and other roadblocks that government puts in the way of farmers before they start looking at subsidies. Western wildfire activity has been most notable over the past month in places such as the Central Rockies and Northern California. Yet USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says looking forward... We are currently in a dangerous time period as we have a front working its way across the West and 
And with that, we have seen some lightning strikes without the benefit of much rainfall. That has sparked some new fires in a few spots across the Intermountain West. Plus gusty winds and low humidity levels associated with that front. Especially across the southern Great Basin and moving into the Intermountain West and even parts of the southwest, it is a very dangerous time. And adding in the 4th of July season when there's folks out of doors burning fires, putting off fireworks, it is a little bit tenuous right now in parts of the West in terms of this wildfire danger, which is elevated to critical in many areas. Rippy adds a warming trend will build moving ahead from the weekend, increasing the risk of wildfires out west. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Safflower is blooming in the Sacramento Valley. Garbanzo beans are being harvested. In Tulare County, wheat for grain continues to be harvested. Wheat for straw was baled. Corn for silage was tasseling. Alfalfa and cotton continues to be irrigated. Grapes were developing well. Stone fruit orchards and pruning of stone fruit is ongoing. Peaches, nectarines, and apricots were harvested. Cherry harvest is wrapping up for the season. Valencia orange harvest is ongoing. Some citrus trees are being planted while older trees were being trimmed and skirted. Almonds, walnuts, and pistachio orchards are being irrigated right now. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Weed control continues. Tomatoes are fruiting in Sutter County. Cucumbers, eggplant, peppers, squash, and tomatoes were harvested down in Tulare County. Lettuce continues to be harvested along the central coast. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was rated to be in poor to fair condition in the lower elevations of California. Rangeland conditions were better at higher elevations. Some cattle were moved to those higher elevation ranges. Sheep grazed on retired cropland. Bees are active in sunflower fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. In the spirit of Farm to Fork, the California Cut Flower Commission hosted a series of field-to-vase dinners around the country. At a recent food and flower event on the Capitol lawn in Sacramento, California's flower farmers talked about the issues facing their industry. The CEO of the California Cut Flower Commission is Casey Cronquist. He says consumers, besides being concerned about favoring locally grown food, should also think about where those store-bought flowers are coming from. This is what he told the California Farm Bureau Federation. This is a really magical experience for people. Uh, connecting that dot, uh, you know, where people are, are always thinking about where food comes from today and uh, making sure they understand the importance of buying uh, American-grown flowers is something I think this dinner helps to inspire. Our big challenge is 74% of consumers have no idea where their flowers come from, and yet we know a majority of Californians and Americans generally would prefer to buy American if given the choice. June and Renee Van Wingerden are flower farmers based in Santa Barbara County. They talk about the threat to California's flower growing operations due to cheaper imports. In our industry, we're really affected by imports, Colombia and Ecuador specifically, um, who don't deal with all the regulations we do. They pay their people per day what we pay per hour. And we have to compete at the same price because the imports are at that price. So we cannot raise our prices for our cut Gerberas, our cut chrysanthemums, our cut oriental lilies. And, and, and that's why it's so important that the consumer looks for the California grown label. Because then they know they're buying California 
Yes, it might cost a few pennies more, but at least you're supporting agriculture at a local level. California was the dominant state in cut flower production, accounting for about 78% of the total cut flower wholesale value in the United States. The most current figure for California's cut flower production, $294 million. California prune production this year, put another way, 99% of U.S. production is expected to be less than 2017. Lance Holding of USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service produces the production news on dried plums. We're expecting 80,000 tons. That's nearly a fourth down from what was produced last year with 2017 production coming in at 105,000 tons. Yet Honig describes the year-over-year -year production trends in the prune crop as up and down. Weather plays such a big factor in things there, and so with a little bit of reduction this year, it is due to weather again this time. With some orchards experiencing inclement weather during bloom and pollination time, which in turn impacted 2018 dry plum production. At least in some of the key areas in California where the prunes are grown, really leading to some lower expectations than a year ago. This in turn will impact global production numbers, as California is responsible for 40% annually of the world prune crop. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. You've heard of the farm to fork movement here in Northern California. How about farm to Mug. Yolo County farmer Fritz Durst told the California Farm Bureau about a type of two-row barley that he's growing that's going to be used to create malt for brewing beer in winters. I'm Fritz Durst and I'm standing in a two-row malting barley field in the Hungry Hollow region of Yolo County. This area was once known for its malting barley uh, decades ago and the barley itself was traded internationally and it was recognized for its high quality. And what's kind of neat today is that we're kind of going back in time and that specialty grains are have value to people here in California. And it will be distributed locally. You can already go 30 miles from here to uh, the town of Winters and drink beer there that's made from this particular variety of barley. And we're really looking forward to the future here. Um, this particular field is actually, it is uh, organic. There's a certain sector of the market that prefers organic grains, and I'm trying to help with that. There's another sector of the market that's looking for grains produced in a, in a sustainable manner, and um, that would be no-till. So some of the gentlemen, that I, other farmers that I'm working with, are producing this cultivar organically. This year, things are turning out very well here. The current farm bill expires at the end of September, and at one point, House and Senate conferees have to get together and hammer out a single bill from the substantially different ones already passed by each House. Then, both Houses have to pass that bill. When will that happen? We're still a ways away, particularly with the work requirements on SNAP. But Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told reporters in Pullman, Washington, he's hopeful lawmakers will get it done by September 30. One reason he thinks so. I think most people don't want to go back and face uh, midterm elections here in November uh, without having a farm bill there. There's enough uncertainty with trade disruptions right now. Farmers need the predictability and the certainty of another uh, authorized farm bill for the next five years so they can begin to make cropping plans for the future. Purdue assured farmers that crop insurance, under attack by some lawmakers, will survive in any new farm bill that Congress passes. He called crop insurance the mainstay of the farm safety net. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. There's some bad news, but some good news coming out of Tulare County. The California Farm Bureau Federation reports that thefts of tractors, farm implements, trailers, and other farm equipment is creating headaches for California's farmers, not only in Tulare County, but throughout the state. Down in Tulare, they've reported thefts 
of nearly half a million dollars worth of heavy equipment so far in 2018, although more than half of that has been recovered. Why? Well, it's because deputies have been encouraging farmers down there to mark their equipment, lock it away, and take other steps to deter thefts. Harvest of bell peppers is moving from the California desert into the Central Valley, with farmers reporting that prices have come down as the harvest accelerates. Green bell pepper harvest began in the Bakersfield area a couple of weeks ago, and red bell peppers will start soon. The bell pepper harvest here in Northern California usually starts in mid-July. The leading state for bell pepper and chili pepper production? Of course, it's California. The dog days of summer. Usually the start of July to mid-August, the hottest, most uncomfortable part of the season. And if you are a backyard poultry owner, this is especially true for your chickens. Chickens are actually fairly susceptible to heat stress. They are like dogs in that they don't sweat. So most of their cooling is done through panting. A lot of times you'll see chickens kind of crouch with their wings out to kind of help facilitate some airflow under the wings. And the wattle and the comb also radiate a fair amount of heat. Ashley Wright of University of Arizona Extension says heat stress at backyard poultry can result in decreased appetite, reduced egg production, potential heat stroke, even death. How can backyard bird owners protect their flocks from the heat? Wright says start by putting coops up under shade, such as trees. The natural sort of shade is very effective at cooling. And then second option, you can even use things like temporary shade cloths if you need to, to shade more of a coop. Where to place the shade cloth to keep the hot afternoon sun out is also essential. Wright emphasizes in the coop itself. The number one thing to be aware of is ventilation, especially in those nest boxes. What it comes down to is ventilate those boxes. If you can't ventilate them, close them off. To prevent chickens from entering into stuffy nest boxes that could lead to suffocation or heat stroke. In places where humidity is low, such as the desert southwest, misters can help keep the flocks cool. Having cool drinking water available, of course, is essential. Wright says another tip is giving chickens and other poultry frozen treats, like fruit in a cube of ice. It's a nice cool treat that can help them cool their bodies internally and encourage them to consume more water. Poultry in hot conditions eat less, so Wright says the dietary emphasis should be on high nutrition feed and on avoiding corn and scratch grains. What it does do is dilute the diet because it's high energy, but it doesn't really have all the vitamins and minerals that they need. First thing in the morning tends to be when it's coolest. So I wouldn't feed any treats during that time because you want to encourage them to eat their actual layer ration. And if a bird shows signs of developing heat stress, such as heavy panting, lethargy, and a pale waddle and comb, Wright suggests to take a bucket of cool and not ice cold water, and you can submerge her up to about her neck for just a few seconds in that water, and that can help cool her body temperature down to a more normal level, and then just give her some time to recover in a nice cool place until she's completely recovered and able to go back out. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Brian McKenzie of McKenzie Farms in Sutter County grows rice, more specifically organic rice. He told the Rice News that one of the major challenges of being an organic rice grower is controlling weeds, but they've found a solution. Find me is a field of organic short grain rice. Um, it's about 30 days old and we're going through a dry up right now. In organic rice we have really two forms of weed control. One is our water management and the other is the ability to dry it up. So what we do in a dry up is we take the water off, the rice will survive and we leave it off until the weeds don't. And when we put the water back on the rice takes off again and we should have a pretty clean organic rice crop. 
One part of USDA that doesn't get much attention is the National Agricultural Library. It is the institution that holds agricultural publications and data that capture the work that USDA has done since the creation of the agency in May of 1862 when it was established by Abraham Lincoln. That was the library's director, Paul Wester. The library's importance is that it helps facilitate the creation of agricultural knowledge, both here in the United States and around the world. First of all, opinion here, but a most amazing institution that has really had a profound influence on agricultural knowledge worldwide. Susan Fugate is the head of the National Ag Library's physical collections. For many, many years, we collected as extensively worldwide as we could. So we have a lot of material. My favorite part of the collection is the USDA Pomological Collection, which is the watercolor illustrations of the late 19th and early 20th century specimens. The specimens were brought together and illustrated by a series of watercolor illustrators that kind of capture the specimens that were developed across the country at USDA facilities and elsewhere. And they're beautiful materials and they're actual works of art, but they also um, represent important science that's been accomplished by USDA, its scientists and its collaborators from the late part of the 19th and early parts of the 20th century. There are um, black and white photos that are part of that collection, but I can tell you the watercolors are remarkably more useful to identify a particular plant sample or say apple varieties. Now about 40% of that entire collection is apples. Apples were very popular, of course, and they traveled easily. So if you were going to move and you wanted to take your apple orchard with you, apples traveled more easily. And as it turns out, apples were not only important then, they're still relevant now. I was out in Pullman, Washington, speaking at an agricultural information managers conference, and a heirloom apple hunter gave a presentation at one of the sessions I was at. And one of the things that he does is he um, travels around the Pacific North West looking for old apple strains, heirloom apples. And what he does is he uses the materials from our pomological collection to identify apples that are found in abandoned apple orchards in the Pacific Northwest. So he's able to take information that we have online within our pomological collection, which is also represented in our physical collections, and use that to understand and identify materials that are found out in abandoned apple orchards in the Pacific Northwest. Which he adds is one way USDA is helping to connect the 19th century with the 21st century. The pomological watercolors and other NAL collections can be found online at www.nal.usda.gov. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. It's not only essential for protecting farmland, but also for public health and safety. We're talking about California's extensive system of levees and earthen dams along its many rivers. It provides security for crops, property, and people. There are something like 1,100 miles of aging levees in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta area alone. And one of the main threats to the state's levee systems is burrowing rodents. Rodents can cause significant damage and even failure of levees, earth dams, and other flood control channels. A ground squirrel tunnel can be 35 feet long, and a single gopher is capable of moving about one ton of earth every year. One control that's been popular and somewhat effective over the years have been anticoagulant rodenticides. The problem, though, with these rodenticides, they're also poisonous to birds of prey, wild animals, as well as household pets who might consume these dead rats. 
In Southern California, the Ventura County Public Works Agency has discovered that hawks and owls may be more effective than rodenticide anticoagulants for controlling rodent damage to dams and levees by giving local birds of prey roosting sites. Jane Braxton Little wrote about raptors to the rescue at the website revelator.org. She says officials there were surprised at the results of their scientific study. So after uh, the end of the 17-month, 18-month study, they found out that the raptors were 50% more effective in controlling rodents than the bait poisons, and they saved them $7,400 per levy mile. So they were much, much more cost-effective. I think they figured out that over 30 years, the um, raptors could save a potential over $200,000 to the county over a 30-year period. So that's significant. Have they acted upon that? Have they gone out and built more perches and added more barn owl houses? Yes. They went from uh, 17 perches, I believe, to 127 perches. They now have 16 owl boxes. They are have these on 10 miles of levees and a third of their 55 dams. So they've expanded the program and believe they can ex- expand it even further as, as, um, as time goes by. Among the raptors attracted to the Ventura Levee Study site were red-tailed hawks, white-tailed kites, seven other hawk species, along with barn owls and burrowing owls. Food and health experts know about the nutritional value of nuts. Whether it's almonds, pistachios, walnuts, many of them are excellent or good sources of nutrients, including some nutrients for some of the nuts that we consider shortfall nutrients, meaning most Americans don't get enough of these nutrients in their diet. So the nuts are a nutrient-dense package. David Baer of USDA's Agricultural Research Service elaborates from a health perspective. What the epidemiological evidence shows is that people who consume nuts have reduced risk for many of these sorts of chronic diseases, like coronary heart disease or cardiovascular disease, cancer risk, and things like that. However, some consumers shy away from nut consumption because of fat. Most of our other plant foods are very low in fat. Nuts and seeds contain a lot of fat. And there's a lot of energy in fat, more energy than in protein or carbohydrate. Energy as in calories. But are these high-fat calories merely empty calories, or do they offer nutritional value when burned in the body? What is known as bioavailability? A number of studies, different countries, different groups of people have shown consumers of nuts have a lower body mass index than non-consumers, despite the fact that they're eating this plant food, which is relatively high in calories. And a lot of those calories are coming from fat. So Bear and ARS research colleagues have studied some tree nut varieties to see if nutrients inside them are indeed bioavailable, as well as if their caloric content is then perhaps lower than what you would find on the package label at your local store. We started out working with pistachios, Then we did some research with almonds, and then we did some research with walnuts. So for pistachios, research found there were less calories on the label versus what was measured in a serving, a 5% difference. The same was recorded for almonds and walnuts, although that differential was 20%. Barris says this could provide an explanation why some people don't experience excessive weight gain when eating nuts, even with their high calorie content. Perhaps it's those healthy fats that are 
associated with reduced risk for coronary heart disease, those fatty acids that help keep LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, at lower levels. Bayer says in addition, this research could help provide a more accurate representation of calories in nuts on food labels. Calories are now much more prominently displayed on the Nutrition Facts panel, and it's probably important that those calories be accurate. We can have data to support a more accurate energy value listed on the calorie on the food label. That's something that's helpful to consumers who might want to track their calorie intake. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. It's right behind dairy products and grapes. I'm talking about almonds. California's almonds are the third largest agricultural commodity from California. In 2016, California's almond crop was worth more than $5 billion. But a lot of people still have misconceptions about where almonds come from. Let's look at the lifestyle of an almond as told to us by the California Almond Board. Crunching into an almond, it's hard to imagine the journey it took to make its way to your mouth. So just where did this delicious nut get its start? Right here in California, where 80% of the world's almonds are grown by farmers who care for their trees as they move through the almond life cycle every year. After losing their leaves each fall, the almond trees spend the winter in a period of dormancy, storing up nutrients and energy for the coming growing season. In February, almond trees burst into bloom, blanketing California's Central Valley in beautiful white and light pink blossoms. Honeybees are brought into the orchards where they forage for pollen and nectar, their first natural food source of the year. As they move from tree to tree, the bees pollinate almond blossoms along the way. As spring gets into full swing, almond kernels mature and grow to full size with a shell hardening around them, protected by a fuzzy outer hull. Once the spring showers stop and the weather heats up, farmers begin to irrigate their almond trees, taking great care to use each drop of water responsibly and efficiently. With the summer heat, almond hulls split open, letting the almond shell peek through so the almond inside can dry. Shortly before harvest, the hulls turn yellow and open up completely. In late summer, mechanical shakers give each almond tree a good shake knocking almonds to the ground. There, the almonds dry naturally in the warm California sun before being swept into neat rows and picked up for the next part of their journey. After they've left the orchard, almonds pass through special rollers to remove the hull, shell, and debris. The almond community practices a zero waste approach by putting everything the orchard produces to good use. Almond shells are used as livestock bedding and hulls are valuable dairy feed. Once the hulls and shells have been removed, the almond kernels are sorted by size. After sizing, almonds are carefully stored until they're ready to be shipped or further processed into any variety of different almond forms for diverse culinary uses. Among all of California's agricultural exports, almonds lead the way. In 2016, exports of California's almonds totaled over $4 billion. 
food. That's the rallying cry of Generation Z grocery shoppers. That according to Food Business News. Gen Z, as they're known, those born between 1997 and the present, represent 27% of the U.S. population. They have higher consumption rates of organic foods and beverages than any other group. And they were taught to value food based on nutrition and function, not just in terms of taste. Generation Z is similar to millennials in that they demand authenticity, freshness, and purity in their products. But more than millennials, Generation Z consumers say clean eating improves their quality of life and that fresh food plays a key role in their lifestyle. And they're not just saying that either. Gen Z accounts for some of the heaviest use of organic and non-GMO foods. Gen Z's also approach snack foods differently. The generation's on-the-go lifestyle lends itself to more ready-to-eat foods that may be incorporated into or in between traditional meals. Although genetically enhanced foods and their potential health, nutrition, and environmental benefits are gaining greater acceptance with consumers, both here and abroad, there are still some, individually and collectively, who have questions. How to address them? Farm broadcaster Jeff Nelly is among those who wonder. Does it take a new food? Does it take a new something that's genetically enhanced to get the consumer to realize, you know, maybe this is okay? Mary Kay Thatcher of Syngenta says indeed this approach is essential in terms of consumer education and acceptance. If for no other reason than to avoid mistakes made when genetically modified crops first gained public awareness over two decades ago. If we could have come up with a product that would have made tomatoes tastier, longer, that wouldn't have allowed a banana to go bad so quickly, eyesight with carrots, etc. If we could have come up with those kind of products first before coming up with the major corn soybeans, we probably might very well have had a lot better consumer acceptance. Researchers in the U.S. and around the world are developing, and in many cases have developed, such products. Andy Levine of the American Sea Trade Association offers examples from his industry. Lycopene in tomatoes, and 40% of our baby leaf spinach is organic. Well, the one thing that kills an organic spinach field in the second is downy mildew. If we can get downy mildew resistance naturally occurring, you don't have to spray and you fit that market. So there's a lot of those things that are on the verge, and we're getting close. Meanwhile, genetically enhanced foods offer solutions for malnutrition in the developing world. These are respectively Margaret Ziegler of the Global Harvest Initiative and University of Florida Professor Kevin Folta. There are many companies looking at how to improve vitamin A content of crops, rice, sorghums, millets, etc. And it's possible to do it. It would bring great benefit actually to the poorest people who actually grow and consume those products. So the major food staples like rice, cassava, or banana have been engineered with the genes from beta-carotene producing plants like carrots or daffodils that now can make higher levels of beta-carotene in the fruit or inside the common foodstuff. Yet the challenge remains introducing these products in the marketplace, especially in the developing world, with access blocked in many cases due to regulations and, yes, concerns. Tom Slate of the U.S. Grains Council points out progress in this regard is occurring through regulatory cooperation and education of both regulators and consumers. I think what really sells first is safe and quality food. And Margaret Ziegler adds in nations and regions where survival and nutrition is the primary concern involving food supply. The countries themselves are beginning to speak out and beginning to ask for more of this technology that would benefit the people in their countries. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. It's vacation time. We need it. Yes. We want it. Yes. Vacation. We own it. Mm. Surf, beach, palm, trees, got no worries. Ah, uh, yes, no worries. But if we are driving on this vacation and taking or 
Uh, one expert says there may be some things we can do to make the trip a no-worry trip or a least worry trip anyway. It's all coming up on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. I need a vacation, vacation. A vacation with as little stress and worry as possible. One possible worry in the back of your head might be, what if my pet runs off? It gets away from me at a rest stop or someplace during the vacation. How would I find my dog or cat? Anne McCann is with the Agriculture Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Services Animal Care Program. She says you'd have a lot less to worry about if your pet had up-to-date identity and contact information on the animal and has it, of course, before you uh, take off on the trip. We encourage people to use microchips and to register the chips to ensure that there is a valid phone number attached to the animal and, in fact, multiple phone numbers. Another way to do this is through identification on the pet's collar. Both of these act as pet insurance in a way so that if your pet does get out while you're traveling, you have a way of reuniting with your animal. Yes, it does. And along that same line, if for some reason your pet uh, gets out, it ends up biting somebody or something like that on the vacation. Anne says it would be a good thing to bring along a copy of your pet's shot record so that if you need to prove that your pet is current on vaccination, you can do that while you're away from home. Now, that one I would not have thought of. Other stuff to bring is a little more obvious. You want to keep them on the food that they're used to eating. Bring bedding and toys, food and water bowls, and all of that stuff that your pet uses all the time at home because you can reduce the stress on your pet by... Having things that your pet is familiar with while you're bringing them to an unfamiliar location. Now, many of us drive around with our pets in the car all the time, but if your pet has never traveled in the car... Get them used to riding in the car ahead of time. You don't want the first time they get in a car to be for the family vacation. It can lead to a lot of stress in the car, either because they are stressed and have a lot of anxiety, or if they get car sick. And if your pet uh, does tend to get all anxious in the car, your veterinarian may be able to help you out. Talk with your vet about options for easing the pet through the trip so that everybody gets to your destination unscathed. The vet may have some things to help calm your pet and to help prevent your pet from getting car sick. Also in that same vein, in the hours before you actually leave, limit your pet's food intake. Don't feed them a full meal right before you get in the car. Instead, offer them a small amount of food a few hours prior to the trip. Give them a chance to go potty before you get in the car and go. And that reduces the possibility that you're going to have car sickness en route. Well, it reduces the chances for your pet to having car sickness, which would make you a little sick too, I guess. Now, many people ride around with their pets just loose, unsecured in the car. Not a good idea for them, just like it's not a good idea for us. McCann says, ideally on the trip, if it's a cat, it should be in a crate or some kind of confinement with a litter box and room to lie down. The crate needs to be secured somehow also. Now, for a dog, Anne says you really should secure the dog as well. They do make special car seatbelt type arrangements for dogs. With a seatbelt that's attached to a harness that goes around its chest, that's attached to a dog seatbelt that attaches to the seatbelts in the car. She says do not ever just pass the regular car seatbelt through your dog's collar. A sharp stop or a collision could break the dog's neck and 
your heart with it. Also, and we see this all the time, you know, the dog's uh, heads hanging out the car window. And McCann says that's also not such a hot idea, especially at high driving speeds. Debris can get into the dog's eyes and really cause a problem. Next, how often should you stop for your dog's water and uh, other business? I would say every two to three hours. And when you stop? Never, never leave the pet alone in a parked vehicle. In the summer, it only takes a few minutes for the heat to build up. Could kill your pet. Or something else could happen. If it's a really smart Eleki pet, it might decide to uh, hijack the car and drive off on his own vacation. We need it. We want it. Gotta watch those pets every minute. This has been Agriculture USA. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Nationwide, topsoil moisture rated very short to short moved up three percentage points from last week to 28%. This is twice the number from a year ago. We're looking at topsoil moisture, 61% short to very short in Texas, 76% short to very short in New Mexico. And we also have amounts near 50%, 46% short to very short in Oklahoma and 48% in Kansas. That was USDA meteorologist Eric Lubehusen, who says another state he's watching is Indiana. You see excessive wetness across southern Minnesota, east into Michigan. And then just to the south of that, we have that dryness across southern Iowa, northern Missouri, eastward, and it kind of hops along eastern parts of Illinois. And then uh, the, I guess, the west central parts of Indiana have been um, very dry over the last 60 days. So we have right now what amounts to kind of a mixed mess in terms of crop conditions across the Midwest because of the highly variable nature of the rainfall. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And finally, USDA Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue says he's hopeful about immigration reform. He was talking with reporters in Richland, Washington last week about the need for a legal agricultural workforce. Legal farm labor is uh, obviously a big concern. Uh, we don't have enough domestic workers for many industries, but particularly for agricultural industries. And it really gets down to, do we want to import a legal farm workforce or do we want to import our food? And I think most people would love to have their food continue to be produced in the United States. And uh, I certainly want to see that, but we can't do it without a legal workforce. And it's imperative. I, I hope Congress can deal with that uh, in July before the break to make sure we get some certainty in our uh, farm work Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.